0: everybody for coming to join me and I guess if we just go around the circle and say our names and you can say a little tidbit about yourself and it does not have to be academic (laughs) (laughs) okay so so I'm first so I'm Beth I'm going to be presenting um and wow it's so hard to say something about yourself that's not academic (laughs) (laughs) you got it um Right now, I'm really interested in the history of fatness in the United States. Also, trying to make delicious food for myself that I really want to eat during the week is a big challenge. And I just got out of a cast on my arm. Mm-hmm. I upgraded Yay. to a brace. I'm working with that.
1: Yeah. I'm Becca. Um, something not academic about me is that I am very soon going to start crocheting tote bag that looks like a goose
0: <laughs> oh I can't That's wait amazing. I, no, I haven't started
1: yet because my partner and I just got a puppy and it's been wrecking my life but as soon as I have like I don't know like a minute and a half of alone time I'll probably start to crochet a goose and I can't wait <laughs> um
2: my name is Erin I am said partner <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just got i was gonna talk about our puppy that we just got because she is a total monster and has <laughs> really come into our lives with a with a force that's been <laughs> pretty fun um we're going on a road trip very oh, soon yeah. um to go visit some of becca's family out east and see some of my friends which i think It's pretty silly that we're not doing over the school spring break but after it (laughs) we're going on our own vacation so yeah that's great (laughs)
3: um i'm carissa um i feel unprepared for this question um i guess i've been making a lot of sourdough bread which is very fun and exciting
4: and delicious yeah yummy Mm
3: -hmm.
4: yeah i'm elena and outside of school i like to
0: be on the river So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I brought you all together to talk about one of, if not my favorite presentations. I've been giving it a lot of love um, and thought and care recently, which is the story of wildlife management and eugenics. It has gone through many iterations. The very first version of it was after a summer that I did a whole ton of reading about all this material. And then I absolutely vomited it out into my lab group (laughs) over two hour and a half sessions. So like bless their hearts because they sat through both sessions so patiently and like asking questions and it was such a mess. Um, But then for the class with Erin and Carissa, I had to sit down and revise it and it was really hard. But now I'm really glad that I did that because now I really like what it has become and it gets... Um, kind of like refined every time. And also, I'm just going to say to all of you, if you want to like add anything, well, I don't want to say if you want to. I always say this presentation is very two-dimensional when it's up on a screen or if it's just me talking about it. But what makes it like a living and a growing thing is when the people who are viewing it add to it. So I actually highly encourage like interruptions and interjections and your thoughts and feelings about it because it makes it... Um, Yeah, like bigger and a living thing every time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, let's get started. I'm going to tell you two stories. The first story is the story that I learned when I went to school at the University of Vermont from 2009 to 2013. And I wanted to be a wildlife biologist and I was studying wildlife biology. So this story may sound very familiar to you all. Uh yeah, I'd be curious to hear if you know this story. Okay, the story starts over in Europe. And then we have European settlers that sail across the Atlantic Ocean and they land on the east coast of the United States, and what they find is beautiful, pristine land, just like ripe for the taking. They're, the landscapes are unbelievable and it's totally untouched. Um, and they move from the east coast to the West Coast uh, and they go across the country and they're discovering new things. And one really important part of this movement across the country is that wildlife was totally abundant. There's just like the number of passenger pigeons in the sky is so enormous it's in the billions. And when they fly over the sky, there's reports of them blocking out the sun for days at a time. Passenger pigeons as well, like when they land on a tree, they just take the whole tree down because there's so many birds on one tree. And then what we know really well, especially in what we all study, um, is the story of the bison and how many bison there were. Mm -hmm. But we also know that this is a tragic story. That abundance does not stay forever. And one thought that I've seen in some reading is that the settlers at the time did not even know that extinction was a thing that could occur because they hadn't seen it happen before. So there's mass hunting, so much to the point that what, um, the very last passenger pigeon dies in 1914, and her name is Martha. They even put her on display in a museum. And her counterpart was George. Does George and Martha sound familiar, you? Yeah, George Washington and Martha Washington, because this was a national crisis. This was like the story of the country at the time. And I've started to think about it as like the climate change of the time for these people. So they're like, this is the biggest problem that could ever happen to us. Wildlife is tanking. The numbers are really plummeting. And one of the most famous examples is of the bison. They're just overhunted, almost to extinction. I think at their lowest numbers, they get to 256 bison. And it's an absolute crisis. Can I ask about the pigeons?
3: Yeah. Why, why, were, why did people kill so many of them all of a sudden?
0: Some of the hunting was done um, for a game uh, because they were eating them. And then there was also an increase in, like, feather fashion at the time. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if particularly that applied to the pigeons. Mm -hmm. But really what I think was happening was just that, like, there was such a large number that the feeling that these things can never be all absolutely completely gone was so prevalent, you know? But, yeah, I think mostly, like, they were eating them Mm -hmm. and also a little bit of decoration. Okay, so our heroes step in. Um, does one of those people of the, the photo that we're looking at on this screen look familiar?
3: Is it Teddy?
0: Yeah. So one of the people that steps in is Teddy Roosevelt. He is extremely powerful. Um, he In the early 1900s, he does become the president. So he is like up in some high places. And the other person that steps in with him is George Byrd Grinnell. And he's always easy for me to remember because his middle name is literally Bird. And he (laughs) started the Audubon Society. So they're like, okay, this is a problem. We have friends in high places. And all of those friends love to get together and tell their old hunting stories. So they're like, if we don't have anything to hunt anymore, what is going to be the occasion under which we all get together and tell our hunting stories? Right. So they literally create the epitome of an old boys club. And it's called the Boone and Crockett Club. They started in 1888. And the Boone and Crockett Club is America's first conservationist. So it's really interesting that the very first people that do preservation and then eventually conservation are also hunters. And I think that's reflected a lot even to this day in the way that conservation works and is funded by hunters. Like in Colorado, we have Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and a lot of money comes to them through hunting that is like a major source of funding for the way that wildlife is managed it's interesting to me that you have this paradox where like you love something and you also hunt it and then hunters saying we're hunting it because we love it you know like Mm -hmm. give us the ability to hunt something and then we will pay you back in money because we love it so much it's just an interesting like dissonance But it really shapes um, how we have things today. So the Boone and Crockett Club is extremely powerful. In just a few years they have some familiar names like Gifford Pinchot, Aldo Leopold, William Hornaday, who's one of the major players that helps uh, bring back bison in the United States. They have a long list of things, explorers, businessmen, philanthropists, leaders of several state agencies. They have senators, representatives, like people in high places um, and in the early 1900s, like I said, Teddy Roosevelt becomes the president, but he's still very much invested in the Boone and Crockett Club because it's all his friends. <clears throat> and that pays off because they really, the Boone and Crockett Club has a major hand in a lot of the conservation and a lot of the natural resources that we have in the country to this day. Like some big things are the redwoods of California, national parks they have made, national forests, some of these things for the first time, wildlife refuges, Um, They also importantly have things like the Bronx Zoo. They established the Bronx Zoo. Um, They have influence over the American Museum of Natural History, like big things in New York City. The New York Zoological Society, uh, that's what it's called at the time, then becomes the Wildlife Conservation Society that we have to this day, hands in many different pots. But again, there's an issue. So wildlife was tanking. These very powerful men stepped in. And I'll give you an example with what is called the Kaibab deer. So they, for example, these deer, they were really tanking. So they're like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna remove predators for them. We're gonna put them in a protected environment. And so they put them in the Kaibab plateau, which I believe is just outside of the Grand Canyon. And the deer, it goes great. There were 3000 of them. Now there's like over 100,000. But there's an issue because that's too many deer for the area. (laughs) So do you all know what it's called when something, when, like, there's too many wildlife in the land can't, like, hold it? It's over carrying capacity. Exactly. You're very good students. (laughs) Okay. So it's over carrying capacity. And when that happens, um, some of the deer begin to starve. You get disease that goes through the population and they're just like, oh, God, this is a mess. Like we did too good of a job because what they're doing at this time is they're not touching or managing any of these populations at all. So between conservation and preservation, which one is the one where you're just like hands off, not touching it? Preservation. Yeah. Okay. Say a loud bro. Preservation. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Always, people are so uh, quiet about their answers. And like, you're right, though. You're right. <laughs> okay, so this is where we start to there starts to be some like uh, conflict between preservationists and conservationists, because those who are moving more towards conservation are like, Ugh, this is an issue, and we need to actually do something and step in at this point so in comes aldo leopold and i love that aldo leopold comes into this conversation because we even have a room in our natural resources building on the bottom floor that's called leopold's lair named after him aldo leopold um he is an alumni alumnus alumnus of Mm -hmm. yale university and he's a forester and he's like okay I've been studying forestry and practicing it, and what we're doing over here is we're thinking about trees as a crop. And we plant too many, actually. And then once they start to grow, we notice that the ones that are weak and not doing so well, they're kind of flopping over, not looking good. We just like cut those out. We weed them out, and then we're left with the good ones. So why don't we basically take that and apply it to what's happening with the deer? And everyone's like, we love that. (laughs) and thus it will be called wildlife management. So Elder Leopold is credited with this. There's one side where you can think of as like additive or positive, where you're adding to the population and you're making sure as the manager that there is controlled breeding and the deer or the wildlife, the things that are breeding are like the top quality ones because you wanna make sure that their offspring are healthy and strong because you want the population to become better and better and better. Then there's like a negative or subtractive side and you can subtract from the population with sterilization. Personally, I'm from Pennsylvania. We have a major deer problem there because they're like overrun. You can like walk outside and like bump into a deer. And I believe they have tried, like, sterilization with the deer in Pennsylvania. Or you can do euthanization, which means you have some people come in and hunt them. And usually you can hunt and, like, pick out the ones that aren't the strongest. Okay. Oh, and you could think of, like, the motto of this model as sacrifice the few for the good of the many. We're weeding the bad ones out because we want the the good ones to grow big and strong and carry the population on. Makes sense. Okay, when I was restructuring this presentation, I got stuck because I didn't know how to tell the rest of the story. And I was sitting in my bed at home. I know you're not supposed to do work in your bed (laughs) because you're (laughs) only supposed to sleep in there. Um, But I, (laughs) I closed my laptop and I had to like walk away and I didn't know how to finish it. And as we've been learning, the walking away can also be a part of the process. And like a day or two later, I really had to trust myself on this because I had a due date to come and bring it to a class. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, fingers crossed I figure this out. Um, and I came back to it and I realized that to tell the rest of the story, I also had to tell a little bit of my story. So we are all looking at a picture of me <laughs> from undergraduate, from my undergraduate.
3: So I think kidding. I had just um, yeah,
0: graduated. I think I had just graduated. And my goal was to be a herpetologist. Like, I really wanted to do that. This is a photo of someone measuring a snake, like stretching a snake out and measuring <laughs> it for my herpetology class. Um, and a photo of me next to a Galapagos tortoise. I really loved it. And... When I moved out to Colorado, these are some photos from a job that I took where I traveled all over the Great Plains um, and worked with reptiles. And I worked in the field until 2018. And this is a photo of me up on a fire tower overlooking um, Medicine Bow Forest of Wyoming. Um, And that was my last field job. And I didn't know it at the time, but every summer I usually got work in the field as a wildlife tech. And then usually in the winter, I didn't find anything, and I went on unemployment. And so this summer, I worked for the Forest Service. And then after that, it was winter, and I was like, okay, no big deal. Another winter with no jobs. And then the summer came around, and I also did not make, get any jobs. And I was really starting to panic And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) what do I do? I was really losing it. Um, And so I was like, "Okay, here's what I'm going to do. My main goal is to get back into grad school because I want to get my master's in wildlife biology so I don't have to keep doing field jobs. Hopefully I can get paid better, have a stable job. And I really love doing this. So I was applying to some grad schools, but I wasn't really going about it the right way. And all of a sudden, my standards for applying to different positions were starting to get lower and lower. As so well, I was like, first, it's got to be for herpetology. Then I was like, okay, as long as it's for wildlife. And then I was like, okay, as long as I can get into grad school. Um, and can you say more about what you mean by going about it the right way? Sorry, this is about yeah. Time no, ahead. no, that's a good question. So usually, getting into grad school, you're kind of encouraged to like professionally stalk the person that you're interested in mm-hmm. and build a relationship with them and talk to them. Um, and I was just applying to positions like kind of cold because mm-hmm. especially when I was getting really desperate, I was like, I don't know, maybe this person from Connecticut <laughs> will think that this is a good application and they'll accept me and maybe I'll just like move across the country for that. it will be fine. So while I was unemployed, um, first I was like cleaning my house a lot. I was like, wow, free time is so nice. <laughs> um, and then I was like. A very sad person walking around target not able to buy anything because i didn't have any money and then i watched tv for a few days but that got really dangerous really quickly because it's not societally accepted to watch tv all day when you're unemployed and sometimes you get emotionally attached to the characters and then when the show is over you realize you're depressed and that wasn't (laughs) a real world and you have to go back to your life where you don't have a job so what i started doing was reading and i was like (laughs) I'm going to read all the wildlife professional magazines. I'm going to read the scientific papers. I'm also going to learn R, the coding language, which,
4: spoiler alert,
0: I did not learn it. (laughs) I did not learn it by myself. But I was like, I need to have, like, a pile of reading that's for fun so that I'm still encouraged to read. Because you can't just read, like, the dry stuff all the time. And what happened was I started tearing through the for fun pile. And the dry wildlife pile never got any lower. So. The stories that I was reading in the fun pile were anything and everything, like poetry, stories about different kinds of people. Um, Yeah, I remember one was about, like, two girls falling in love. Like, one was about, like, a queer, like, drag queen. One was about, like, an Indian woman, what her life is like in America. Just, like, stories about anything and everything. And they were super fun to read, and I was reading really fast, like, two books a week. And then all of a sudden, I started noticing, especially because some of my friends were working in the social justice realm already, that I was picking up some nonfiction books. And they were about, like, the history of reparations or, like, redlining in the United States. Um, and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> because now, like, I'm digging into drier stuff um, in the fun pile, and I can't get myself to open the wildlife stuff. And I this was supposed to be my story. Like, I told everyone I'm a nature person. I'd been telling everyone for years, like, I had this all figured out and this is what I was going to do, and this is what I would already committed my life to. Like, I already had five years of field experience in this. <clears throat> so, yeah, how could I ever, like, change my story? And I just didn't see a world in which those two things came together. Like, there was no route of possibility there. So, through, um, after almost, like, two years of being unemployed, going through a lot of depression and starting therapy for the first time, one of my friends finally um, offered me a position at CSU, and it was working for a learning community where they had been setting up programs that recruited and supported marginalized students in STEM. And so it started opening up a world for me where those two things were directly intersecting. So <clears throat> I um, eventually applied to a graduate position at CSU, And it was about inclusive teaching. And I was like, that's close enough to what I think I should be doing. Because they were like, we need someone with a science background um, that understands DEI. And at that point, I had been like reading about DEI things for like two or three years. I was like, that's close enough. (laughs) And in reality, it wasn't. And I didn't know anything about education. So then I was like, I'll do uh, social justice and science. Like that'll be close enough to what I want to do. And it wasn't close enough. <laughs> um, so then I uh, gave myself permission to look at the thing I loved most, and that was like conservation and wildlife and everything I had just spent my, my life working on. And that was it. So after that um, and through that, I started g- getting really interested in the deep rabbit hole that was like social justice and natural resources or conservation or wildlife biology. And it was a very deep hole. And so (laughs) that's how we can finally get back to our story. Because now I have a second version of this story for you. Okay, but first, one thing that I haven't mentioned, in part because this is a visual medium, but I think it is kind of important to mention is that what I've been showing you visually It has a timeline along the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I've been experimenting with that in presentations, in part for accessibility um, and in part just for everyone, because sometimes these presentations cover like a large swath of time. Mm -hmm. And if you ever like drift away for a minute and you're like, where are we? What year are we in? You can always just jump back to the timeline. So for us looking at this, we actually need to change our timeline just a little bit. And then we're ready to talk about this guy. So we're going back in time, and we're going to Europe. For those of you that can see this old white guy on a screen that we're looking at, does he look familiar to you? Make some guesses. I don't know.
2: Multiple choice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He, yeah, every time... I'm, I'm always surprised if I maybe see one or two people that recognize his name. And his name is Francis Galton. He was knighted at one point, so sometimes we do refer to him as Sir Francis Galton. But he is a very important fellow, and he is a mathematician, and he's in England. Um, he really loves numbers and measuring. This is, again, the timeline is like he's born in 1822. He dies around the beginning of the 1900s. So he lives a lot of his life in the 1800s in England. Okay, if you know the cor- correlation and regression towards the mean, I always say I don't do math anymore, so that means nothing to me. But statistics <laughs> people, yeah. I was even just at CU Boulder. Um, people were saying, a graduate student was saying that, like, she learned about him in her statistics class very uncritically mm-hmm. <laughs> but they even spent like a day on a discussion board about this person because yeah. he was wow. so integral to statistics he's also huge in
4: um like psychometrics in terms of oh. measuring and all of that stuff
0: in the oh, social sciences so
4: yeah there's a connection connect, there
0: like there. are you thinking is that with like psych Yep, psych world yep. okay Interesting.
4: How we're developing survey... Sorry, psychometrics is how we develop surveys and um, measure things. Mm-hmm. So, like, the process of which you're developing those measurements, which makes sense mm-hmm. that he has an influence here. I'm always surprised you stayed in psych for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I took that class <laughs> at CSU. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, <That's interesting>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So... He, okay, he loves measuring stuff. And this is so cute. He publishes an article on how to best (laughs) cut a cake to preserve its freshness. Isn't that great? (laughs) Did you know you could publish about that? We should publish. Yeah, we should. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about your bread. Yeah. I was just thinking that. How to best cut sourdough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, he collected a lot of data on how to make the best cup of tea. I mean, he's English. They love tea. So that makes sense (laughs) classics. He also measured the butts of African women. (laughs) So here's where it gets a little wonky. And this is also a reminder to say that scientists do not exist in a vacuum. And transatlantic slavery has been happening since the late 1400s. And so African people are in Europe at this time. There's more African men than there are women. And women are really a rarity and they are highly exoticized. So... Um, I often think about like how far away the ethnic studies building is from the biology building on campus, Um, but yet how deeply intertwined all of the departments Mm -hmm. are, like truly all the departments on campus, Mm -hmm. because science for a long time has had its hands in all forms of oppression and all forms of oppression really benefit from science. And so this is a great example of how women, African women in particular, um, There needed to be a reason for them to be seen as hypersexual. And so people like Galton were really feeding into that and saying, well, I measured their butts. And so clearly they are hypersexual. And so clearly whatever happens to their bodies, um, you don't have to be accountable for it, for what you do to them. And then, as anyone would, he made a beauty map (laughs) of Great Britain by assigning an attractiveness rating to women he passed on the street.
2: Which just, wow. yeah,
0: is a real... Sounds oh, a real like real really trap. good science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Super objective. Mm. Super objective. <laughs> wow. As anyone would. Yeah. Um, when you hear the phrase nature versus nurture, you can think of Francis Galton. So put a pen in that. Keep that in your brain. And he has a lot of friends in high places in England at this time. And he's noticing that all of the wealthy families, they have, like, really brilliant children. Um, the children are of, like, high quality, and he's like, wow, it almost seems like if we kept all the wealthy people together that they would keep producing wealthy and intelligent kids, and then we'd have this, like, class of people that is the best kind of person. Not at all thinking about um, how any social influences, like being able to afford going to school... (laughs) Um, or not having to worry about where your next meal is coming from is related to that. He's thinking about it in terms of like what you can inherit and what gets passed down when you reproduce with someone else. So he's like, clearly certain people should be mating together. And he is really obsessed with the bell curve. Um, I think another person, um, Cutley, a Belgian astronomer creates the bell curve, but He is thinking about, because the person who originated the bell curve was really interested in the middle part, the average, Mm -hmm. and Galton is really obsessed with the tail ends. Mm -hmm. So on one tail end, you have very few people, and to him, those are the undesirable people. And on the other tail end, when you're thinking about humans on the bell curve, he's like, ah, those are the exceptional people. And so what if we could push society more and more towards the tail end that is uh, exceptional? Uh, he has a plan. He's like, oh, I got to tell you about his cousin first, though. Because <laughs> you, might, you might know his cousin. <laughs> Charles. Yes. Because talking about families, uh, his cousin is Charles Darwin. And this is important because around like the 1860s, I want to say like 1865, but I'm not sure. Darwin comes out with a the theory of evolution and it really influences Galton's work. And he's like, wow, people can evolve to become the best kind of person according to Belton, which might have some flaws. <laughs> and just so you know, Charles Darwin was a slavery abolitionist, so he did not believe that people should be enslaved, in particular African people. But he did not think that Black people were equal to white people. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough when we absolutely put this man on 1,000 pedestals. Um, yeah. He has a book about what he how he thinks people evolved called The Descent of Man. And in that, he talks about Galton, his cousin, and calls his ideas that like intelligence is inherited really remarkable and ingenious. And he is on board with the idea that genius tends to be inherited. So we should have two genius people meeting together to have a genius kid. And if you're not intelligent, get out of the picture. Okay, his plan is called eugenics. So, Galton, Galton. yes, (laughs) Galton is the person who coins the term eugenics in 1883. I have, like, a definition of eugenics, but I think what is a much better way to think about it is an image of a family tree where the ends of the tree or even whole branches are getting pruned off by um, unembodied hands, (laughs) So it's almost like, yeah, if you took scissors to a family tree and you just decided to snip off ends so that you could design the family tree to be however you wanted. So eugenics is really about shaping society based on certain qualities of people, whether they be physical or mental, in hopes that future generations will continue to improve to become the best kind of society possible. And think about those disembodied hands pruning away at the tree because in reality, they belong to certain people. So eugenics um, is often commonly described as having two parts. One part is more additive or positive. And in this part, you're interested in controlling breeding of specific people and you want the best people to breed together to create the best offspring. The second part is considered negative or subtractive. Does this look familiar? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just. And saw. on yeah. one end, <clears throat> to subtract people out of the population, you can um, do that through sterilization of a living person, or you can also go through euthanization of those people. And the motto of eugenics is "sacrifice the few for the good of the many." Any thoughts so far? I'm getting shivers. <laughs> We're seeing some parallels. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, I also just want to pause one minute on the word sterilization because for the longest time, I could not get it through my head that that meant like re- either removing reproductive organs to make someone not able to reproduce or altering reproductive organs so that someone could reproduce. Like if I said I sterilized my kitchen counters this weekend, what do you think happened in my kitchen? Cleaned it. Yeah. Like deeply, right? Like mm-hmm. the kitchen was like dirty, mm-hmm. like beyond. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, yep. germ free. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was a that was really confusing to me for the longest time. Like, what what are they getting at here? Why does the word sterilization? What does it have to do with reproduction? Until I learned about the idea of racial health, <laughs> people thinking of undesirable people as like dirty mm-hmm. and polluting the racial purity and the mm-hmm. racial health of a nation or of a population. Mm -hmm. So to clean out those people through sterilization, to then make like the bigger picture and the bigger population more clean, that's when it started like clicking in my head that that language is very intentional. Mm -hmm. Okay, so unfortunately, eugenics is a very popular idea and it spreads across the world. I always like to think of it as like a dandelion when it's in that white state mm-hmm. where it's like a globe of white and then someone blows on it and all of the little seeds carry on their little umbrellas and they land in different places. Um, what is the one place that you always hear of, if at all, if, uh, about eugenics? Germany. Mm-hmm, Germany. So we know that it goes to Germany. It actually goes to quite a few other countries. Um, And there's a really amazing website called the Eugenics Archive that is out of Canada. And they have this like interactive globe that you can pull around and see how it went all over the world and like click on the countries. But what I'm most interested in is when it goes to the United States. Okay, so eugenics makes its way to America around this time. (laughs) And we have to go back just a little bit because there's a little bit of correction that needs to be done specifically, specifically to that conservation story. And I see you all shaking your head because you all know this. Um, but the idea that settlers just hit the European coast or the Eastern coast from Europe and then traveled across a pristine wilderness. Um, when you get a more full version of that history, you realize that all of that land was occupied by many different native peoples. Some estimates I've seen up to 100 million native peoples. And it's also really important to think about that in the context of the story that we hear about the abundance of wildlife and the lushness of the forests and all of the land, Um, because we think that those two things are mutually exclusive, like people and abundance of nature. But there was a time at which people were stewarding the land and they were in relationship with it and those two things existed at the same time. And so it's an important piece to add to the beginning of the story of conservation and also to understand where the country is um, at the time when eugenics comes over from Europe. So it's in the early 1900s (laughs) at the turn of the century and this period of time is called the Progressive Era. I'm really fascinated by this time, and it's huge for conservation. A lot of stuff happens in the progressive era. One thing that is like top of the news every morning in the country is immigration. So from 1900 to 1908, six million immigrants come into the country in the United States. And you might be like, well, that's not a big deal because America is known for uh, accepting a lot of immigrants, right? Like, what is that called when they when they all come together? America's the melting pot. Mm-hmm. Like, that was our slogan for a long time. But some time has passed. And the people um, who are alive at this time and are in power at this time, the old wealthy white guys, a lot of them, they have a direct lineage to the founders of the United States um, that caused the genocide across the country of native peoples. And so like their fathers fought in the civil war and their grandfathers were the people who came in and founded America. <laughs> so they're like, this is our place now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you all cannot be coming in here. And the people that are coming in are gross. Like <laughs> they are, immigrants from countries that we don't like so this is that time in the country when there's like signs on businesses that say no irish no italians Mm -hmm. there's a certain kind of desirable person and they want to make sure that the same kind of people as them are coming into the country so like surprise surprise it's the kind of person that they are also directly related to (laughs) there's also a belief that Even like Americans are a specific kind of high quality whiteness because the ones that were weak didn't make it over in the transatlantic journey from Mm -hmm. Europe to the United States. And then also some people died out when they tried to establish the original colonies. But the ones who survived, their progeny are now running the country. So they're like even like a top tier kind of whiteness, like old white guy. Um, that's now running the country so they're like we have a specific pure american bloodline and we don't need it getting watered down by all these immigrants coming into the country Mm -hmm. another issue with too many immigrants coming into the country at this time is that there's a fear that they're going to overrun all of our natural resources (laughs) so i love looking at old political cartoons um we are all looking at one from 1903 from a humor magazine called Judge and Uncle Sam is like posted up what appears on what appears to be like the eastern edge of the shore because in the water it's just absolutely full like the ocean is full of immigrants and they're all depicted in a very caricatured way and they're all wearing little bandanas that have something terrible about them and
4: they're all men
0: they are all men yeah mm-hmm. Some of them I can tell, like, they have triangular hats. I wonder if they're trying to infer, like, Asian people. Mm, Um, But they say, like, outlaw, illiterate, pauper. And so there's all these undesirable people, and they are trying to come and take up literally parts of the land. Uncle Sam is um, standing next to some words that say danger to American ideas and institutions. And literally national parks at this time are ideas and institutions that come from like the physical land of the United States. So they're worried that they're going to pollute the bloodline, that they're going to bring disease, that they're going to all be illiterate and poor and lazy. And they're also worried that they're going to overrun all of the natural beauty that all these people are obsessed with. um, And they're obsessed with preserving around this time in the United States. Okay, I was trying to figure out how exactly eugenics kind of like made its way over into the U.S. Mm And Charles Benedict Davenport is one of the major players when it comes to eugenics in the U.S. So note that he (laughs) has his doctorate in zoology from Harvard. He's a biologist at the University of Chicago at the time. And in 1904, he becomes the director of something called the Station for Experimental Evolution at Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island. One of my friends is um, doing her PhD in, like, plant evolution on Long Island. Mm. And she says she sends her genetic work over to Cold Spring Harbor because it's still functioning. Well, well. And she said every time it comes back wonky. And I, I'm always like, that's because it's haunted. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so he has a bunch of staff here. They're working on, um, like, genetics and heritable traits with animals. And so what has resurfaced is... Um, Gregor Mendel's work with like Mm. peas and genetics and so people are like oh my god genetics is a thing we're really interested in this and it seems to be making sense when we have things like breed together we think this is a great idea but he has an encounter with our friend Francis Galton Mm. the originator of eugenics in England and all of a sudden he jumps from working with animals to humans okay He, Charles Davenport, often referred to human babies as the human harvest, the human product, the world's most valuable crop. So what happens in a major part of eugenics is dehumanization, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because remember when we talked about Aldo Leopold and like pulling up, weeding out the bad ones? You really have to dehumanize people to start believing that you can weed out the bad ones and what that actually means in reality. Um, I, one of my slogans, it's funny, after I taught, um, the class that I taught in the fall about science and systems of oppression, um, one of the students who was interviewing us for that, like, piece about the class, she was like, none of you happen to have any, like, slow, like, sayings or slogans, do you? And I was like, oh, I've been workshopping a few (laughs) and this is one of them and they're truly just like patterns that show up over and over and over again until you can't ignore them and this was a big one for me and I always joke that like I would put science minus humanity equals eugenics on a t-shirt and then on the back it would say ask me why but I think my advisor would murder me because it would take so much time like talking to people but I (laughs) just want to lose you yeah I I just want to like spread that everywhere okay we are looking at a picture of an old white guy. He's got the classic balding top of the head, hair around the sides cuz he's trying side. to save it. <laughs> and he has a big old mustache. <clears throat> and I want to ask, does this old white guy look familiar to any of you? Is this Grant? Mhm. Yeah. Literally, I have done this presentation at least 3 times now <clears throat> to um graduate students in ecology, undergraduate students in ecology, a mixed group of mixed in year and also um, majors like across the board natural resources of undergraduates. Whenever I show this man's face, it's crickets every time. (laughs) Not a single person ever knows him and I'm obsessed with him. He haunts my dreams. He's my (laughs) number one nemesis. You read his book? Yes. So So. his book is like 400 pages long, his biography. Um, I read it one summer before I like Regurgitated all of it to my lab group. And um, it's so dry, do not read it. <laughs> but I learned so much. Just passing the Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so this is Madison Grant. He's born in 1865. Does that year ring a bell for anyone? It's just a bonus question. History is a superpower. That's the year <laughs> that we recognize um, slavery as being emancipated in the United States. Oh, yeah. So just to put you in some context of when he was born. And he dies in 1937. I remember that. He is a lawyer. So he grows up in New York City. He goes to Columbia Law School. And like I said, he has direct ties to like lineages that of people who founded the country. Mm-hmm. So he is a wealthy bigwig in the United States. And... A, um. For Davenport, he also has a lot of like hyphenates, like a lot of job descriptions, but I erase some of them because um, a lot of these guys do, <laughs> and I kind of want to focus on the ones that are most important, but notice for him, I have lawyer, anthropologist, writer, and zoologist. Mm-hmm. So he really jumps around a lot. So that's because he doesn't really care about being a lawyer, and he doesn't really want to do it, and he doesn't have to because he's wealthy. So what he does like doing is hunting, <laughs> and he likes hunting big game. Uh, so he does do that, and he starts to get in, like, the Boone and Crockett Club crowd. Mm -hmm. And at this time, Teddy Roosevelt is a little bit older than him, and he's kind of, like, his mentor, Teddy Roosevelt. So they become buddies, and so he writes about, like, some of the stuff he's learned from hunting. I think he has, like, papers on, like, um, moose, I think it is, and, like, the Adirondacks or something. And he's like, you know what? I'm a zoologist now. Like, I've done, I've learned about this. I've learned about this. <laughs> Put up in an anthropologist. <clears throat> and he's one of the most influential conservationists in the country. I have a list of things he's done, like preserve the California redwoods, save the American bison, um, fought for stricter hunting laws when it came to, like, preservation and conservation. He helped create Glacier and Denali National Parks. So when you guys go up to Alaska, think of him. He worked to preserve whales, bald eagles, and pronghorn antelope, and he founded the Bronx Zoo in New York City, which was huge for New York populations to see um, really overcrowded in New York City at the time, and most people didn't have the money or the resources to get out into the countryside. So why do we never hear about him in conservation? Because he's also one of the country's most influential eugenicists. He's a co-founder of the American Eugenics Society, and so, 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 so much more. Okay, so one of the reasons I'm obsessed with Madison Grant is because uh, he had his hands in everything. And he's also really sneaky because he's a person who's, like, behind the scenes but pulling the strings. So he was very... um, strategic about being like a vice president a chairman a co-founder like on the board of directors or like a secretary for something um a trustee so i have this list that's from the appendix of the back of his biography and there's like i don't know how many do you think that is 40 maybe yeah
1: something close
0: right like different societies and organizations and even our friends, the Boone and Crockett Club, are on there. He's actually the president of the Boone and Crockett Club at one point.
1: American Prison Society. Mm. I didn't really notice
0: that. Ugh.
1: Crazy. Yeah, he was the vice president of the American Prison Society.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you'll start to notice there's a mixture of like eugenics stuff, immigration then, like, stuff. Immigration but stuff. But also the military. natural history. Museum, military. Mm-hmm. Well, Quite a mixture, and you're like, that doesn't make sense. And for the longest time, social science. (laughs) That's also what I thought. I was also like, what is going on here? I don't understand. I was reading about all these eugenicists, and again and again and again, it was like, this guy's a zoologist, now he's a eugenicist. This guy's a naturalist, now he's a eugenicist. The man, the German scientist who coined the term ecology, eugenicist. Like, over and over and over again, I was like, what is this pattern? I don't understand. Until I put it together and it has become more and more clear for me as we dig into um, indigenous epistemologies and ways of knowing that it's so it was so easy for these men to go from like a Western colonial empirical science of zoology, biology, genetics, Mm naturalists of categorizing, measuring putting things into boxes, mm-hmm. the whole system of like classification
3: mm-hmm.
0: and to slide that right over to people.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It made so much sense for them because eugenics is all about like even measuring physical attributes and then putting people into boxes and categories. Mm-hmm. And I could even see a step before that is like add foresters into that bunch. Yeah. Because think of Aldo Leopold saying, we're going to treat Plants like crops,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and we're going to measure them, and we're going to pick the best ones, and we're going to weed out the bad ones. And then Aldo Leopold said, We're going to treat wildlife like trees. <laughs> and then these men are saying, We're going to treat humans like wildlife.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And a big step in that is dehumanization of the people that you don't like. Mm-hmm
2: and the othering of just other species and separation from the land.
0: Make, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. makes me even think about how we have like keystone species. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. these are the top, these are the best ones. <laughs> yeah. And these men were absolutely doing that. Like they were only concerned about like elk, bison, charismatic megafauna. Mm-hmm. A lot For the beginning of the conservation movement, they were actively removing animals that they thought were predators. I mean, we know wolf reintroduction here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. They were like, that one's bad, it's gonna die. And it's going to be better for the good ones that we like. (laughs) And if there's any tiny stuff, creepy crawly stuff, we don't care about that. We're just going to prioritize. A big part of it is hierarchy.
3: Yeah, the same with, like, evolution. When I was taking a class, like, my professor had to reorient how, because everyone thinks of it as, like, the very terrible... Image of like from ape to human, like everyone's seen that figure, but that's like how everyone is thinking about it. Like Mm -hmm. there's a
0: climax or like Mm
3: -hmm. a most
0: desirable to get to. That image from like ape to human is so strong. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. super strong. And the idea of survival of the fittest Mm -hmm. did not come from Charles Darwin. It came from social Darwinists who were race scientists and believed that we're evolving towards white people. And that there was a hierarchy of like white people, Asian people, native people, and then black people at the bottom. Which again, just reminds you that science doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And it's awfully convenient to say that black people are non-human or as close to it as possible when you're hoping to subjugate them Mm -hmm. and not pay them for any labor. (laughs) Okay, so one more quote from Davenport. Man is an organism, an animal. And the laws of improvement of corn and of racehorses hold true for him also. Unless people accept this simple truth and let it influence marriage selection, human progress will cease. So they were really influenced by this idea of the principle of reversion in botany, Mm -hmm. where like a wild type was taken with a domesticated plant. And when they were bred together, it became wild type again. Mm -hmm. And that freaked these men out. They were like, (laughs) oh my God, we're seeing that when a white person mates with a person of color, that they have a child who is of color. And that means we're reverting backwards down, we're devolving back down the evolutionary ladder.
3: Mm.
0: Okay, so they did what they knew and they thought about white men, specifically like white American men, um, and women, because they need something somehow to reproduce, <laughs> as <laughs> like their charismatic megafauna. Yeah. And think about this when so many of those animals are named after these old white men, too. Mm-hmm. The very first picture that I showed you had um, caribou on it. That's Grant's caribou named after Madison Grant. Mm-hmm. So they have a dying population of animals. They're going to collect what they have left, protect the remainder in a refuge, just like they did with the kibob deer. They're going to remove predators and invasives and have the desired stock mate, and then they're gonna sterilize or euthanize the undesirables, like in wildlife management. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And Madison Grant publishes this book called The Passing of the Great Race in 1916. And in it, he lays out his plan to do this. So there are three major steps. One, he's gonna legalize birth control in order to reduce the number of offspring from the undesirable classes. Number two, Anti-miscegenation laws will be passed in every state and steps taken to permanently separate the races. So anti-miscegenation means people of two different races cannot marry and have kids. And then three, sterilization will be instituted on a massive scale across the country. <laughs> Out of these three, don't say if you know if he's it, which numbers, and it can be all three, was he successful at? You've got to say your guess. All, all of them? Oh. All of them? I'll say one and two. One and two. I'm
4: going to say all of them.
0: All of them. Okay, let's find Maybe out. not one.
4: I can't decide. Okay, interesting. <laughs> two or three or all of them?
0: Okay. Okay. Number one, birth control. <clears throat> he was not successful in getting birth control into the United States. Um... One person that worked with him was Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of the American Birth Control League, which later becomes Planned Parenthood. And she did not care that she was aligning herself with eugenics. She was just so gung-ho about getting birth control um, to women that she jumped right on board with the eugenics train. And that's something that Planned Parenthood is currently struggling with, mm-hmm. as some things are like named after her, mm-hmm. and she is a big part of their legacy. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's some tension within Planned Parenthood about whether or not to continue to recognize her because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she said some terrible things. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Birth control doesn't become legal until 1965, and that's only for married couples. Wow. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's just so, <laughs> so that's, surprising. Yeah. I was gonna say I had, <laughs> I looked down at the audience in Boulder, and one of the undergrad students was like a face of shock. Yeah. But you kind of said it.
4: But it's experience. not surprising. What <laughs> like, like, is? But it was, yeah, but it's just yeah. It's and just then no it
0: doesn't become legal for everyone until 1972. Uh, wild, bizarre. Okay, anti miscegenation laws. There's an image we're looking at of like a family tree, essentially. And there was the idea at the time of the one-drop rule. Do any of you know what the one-drop mm-hmm. rule is? You want to explain it?
3: If there was even one person of color in your family history, like you were considered considered a person of color.
0: Yeah. So even one drop of black blood, in particular, may be mm-hmm. black. So they were very worried about devolving back down the evolutionary ladder towards animals. And we are looking at a map of when anti-miscegenation laws were removed from the states so anti-miscegenation laws predate the founding of the country mm-hmm. and those states that never had anti-miscegenation laws so you could marry a person of a different race were minnesota wisconsin new york vermont new hampshire new jersey what's that connecticut, connecticut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Nope, not Rhode Island. can't say it. Only one, two, three, four, five, like six or seven states Mm -hmm. never had anti-miscegenation laws. Then we get into when they started being removed. So the next group, they removed anti-miscegenation laws in the 1800s. And that's New Mexico, Kansas, Iowa, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Maine, and Washington. Then the next group removes anti-miscegenation laws in the four, from 1948 to 1967. Um, that includes Colorado. This most of the western states: Montana, Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, California, Utah, Nebraska, for example, South and North Dakota. <clears throat> and then there's one group that's holding out, and they're not allowing people of different races. <laughs> to marry and reproduce and based off of the history of the country it, it kind of makes sense that it's the <laughs> southeast united states including um like oklahoma texas missouri arkansas and louisiana <clears throat> and they wait until 1967 when they take it to the supreme court and they lose
4: okay. that was all six that was 16 states just for the podcast
0: yeah yeah. 16 streets, yeah. it's a, a lot, lot to think about. Okay, and the last one is mass sterilization. <clears throat> and so that one is terrifyingly successful. <clears throat> so this is, we are looking at a map from 1935. And on this map, there are almost the entire country has laws in effect in 1935 that allow for forced sterilization, so, like, non-consensual sterilization. And then there are even, like, five or six or seven more states that have bills pending to to be able to forcibly sterilize people. But it almost doesn't matter that this map is from 1935 because sterilization is still practiced to this day, forced sterilization. So, um... From I guess like the beginning of the Progressive Era, up into this day, uh, mainly into like the sixties and the seventies, about um sixty five thousand people were sterilized in the United States, and it was most commonly done to women in particular women of color, but also white women, if they were considered oh, should i should go back <laughs> um a part of the socially inadequate, inadequate classes. And so from Madison Grant's biography, the author gives a list of who were considered socially inadequate. And that includes the feeble-minded, the insane, the criminalistic, the inebriate, including being addicted to drugs, <clears throat> the chronically diseased, including tuberculosis, syphilis, and leprosy, the blind, as, as well as those with seriously impaired vision, the deaf, as well as those with seriously impaired hearing, the deformed, including the crippled, the, def- the dependent, including orphans, never-do-wells, tramps, paupers, and the homeless, and the epileptic. And so I really like to sit with this list and I always have people pause on this list. And I also like people to think about who they know that's on this list. Also, if you yourself are a part of that list. And I used to show this list and say, some of those things are very subjective. Mm -hmm. But I actually showed it for um, the Lavoie Lab before you joined Elena. And Harry said, "Uh, Beth, everything on that list is subjective. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And that's very purposeful. Because when the lines can always change, you can apply these rules to anyone you want, as long Mm -hmm. as you're on top. Um, and I really want to mention that sterilization was so common in Puerto Rico during this time that it was just known as the operation. And there was a survey done in 1975 by a team of Americans where they assessed um, that nearly a third of Puerto Rican women of childbearing age had been sterilized. Well, that was only 46 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's what I have to think about. <laughs> Also, in Mississippi, it was so common that it was also called the Mississippi appendectomy. But we never talk about sterilization.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, But I always say, like, it is still going on, especially because there was a whistleblower who was at an ice facility, like, during COVID and was saying forced sterilization is happening here. Well... (laughs) Okay, and then I just really want to impress upon you how ubiquitous eugenics and how how much it was taken seriously in the United States. Before Madison Grant published his book, The Passing of the Great Race, fewer than 9% of America's colleges and universities offered courses on eugenics. Mm -hmm. And then afterward, 75% of the nation's colleges and universities offered courses on eugenics. And that includes universities like Harvard, Columbia, Brown, Cornell, Wisconsin, Northwestern, and the University of California. Prestigious. Mm. There was something called the American Eugenics Society, which um, Madison Kerr was a co-founder of. And they were basically like a PR Ooh, team for eugenics. I just want to say it. Yeah. I feel like a common thing
2: that like, if we were to say something like this was happening now, which things are like this in many ways are happening now and we were to say, this shouldn't be taught, they would say, that's censorship. And you can't not Mm -hmm. teach these things because it's censorship. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing to sit
4: with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. specifically around curriculum, yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they needed to spread the word of eugenics, and the American Eugenics Society were the people. They particularly went to a lot of, like, state fairs, and it never clicked for me before why they would go to state fairs and advertise things um, until I was taking disability study- studies courses with Dr. Schmidt. And Dr. Schmidt was talking about eugenics and said, have any of you ever been a part of 4-H? No. Uh, we
2: were just talking about them drive over.
0: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Did you ever, like, raise anything or grow anything? A goat. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, how what happened when you like brought the goat to be judged? Did you ever get there? Yeah, I did. And
2: I think it was I mean, if you're asking what happens after, I think they get killed.
0: Oh well, <laughs> what is the goat <laughs> being judged on? Oh,
2: yeah, like the form. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, posturing. I don't know. I was in seventh grade, I think. So <laughs> it
3: was a while ago,
0: but yeah, that's basically what I'm getting at. Kind yeah. of like it's um yeah, kind of what they were judging humans on at the time. Like, your form, your measurements, maybe even, like, your um, inheritance or, like, the line that you come from. The more perfect the animal, the better. And so it makes sense that they would advertise eugenics at the state fairs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Wow.
0: They were really worried about infant mortality. Oh, there's one more thing I want to say, which is always really important to me. That people were medically categorized into categories like idiot, imbecile, and moron. Mm-hmm. And those categories were so damning, and they often got put upon women who were considered to be promiscuous, but had often just experienced sexual assault. Mm. And then they would be institutionalized, and then they would be forcibly sterilized. And there has never been any reckoning for this kind of language. And it's continued to be used to this day. So you might notice I try to be super careful to not use the word crazy or insane in common language, mm-hmm. as it gets like grouped with this language of idiot and the so moron, and mm-hmm. these categories people-minded.
2: And this is like a hierarchy. Published. This is like in science, or this yeah. is kind of,
0: yeah, medical, medical mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. Got it right. <clears throat> um, infant mortality was an issue at the time, and so. White people were encouraged to bring their babies in. And then of course when you got a bunch of babies, you gotta have a better baby contest. So people would bring their babies to the state fairs and then have their babies judged. Oh my god. Because you gotta have a number one baby. Taller than tiaras. Oh my god, the <laughs> it's basically the same. And then that morphed into fitter family contests where you could then bring your whole family. And then the eugenic dream was that, like, certain families would get, like, pedigree certificates where you would be a eugenically fit family, and then you could breed with other eugenically fit families. Mm -hmm. Kind of that, like, additive or positive considered side of eugenics where you want the good ones to breed together. And just to mention, the president at the time now is Warren Harding, and the vice president is Calvin Coolidge. And they were both totally on board. They thought this was top to your science. And they knew that there was a fundamental difference between the races, and there must not be any um, like social combining of the races in any way, or so they thought. Man, one of my favorite images is the eugenics tree. And it's created by eugenicists when they have a conference in New York City in 1932, because they are scientists. And so they're creating papers and publishing things and having conferences and talking with other top tier sciences. And I urge anyone listening to this to look up the eugenics tree imagery from the International Eugenics Conference, because it's super powerful. At the top of the tree in the branches is the banner that says eugenics, or on the side it says eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution. And in the roots are things like statistics, um, genetics, biology, anthropology, archaeology, economics, (laughs) biography, sociology, biology, physiology, mental testing, medicine,
4: geology, right? Everything. Just everything.
0: Education. (laughs) Law. What do you think of when you... Oh, there's one more thing at the bottom. Like a tree, eugenics draws its materials from many sources and organizes them into a harmonious entity what do you think they're trying to communicate with this image of all these disciplines in the roots of the eugenics tree eugenics
1: Mm -hmm. is the ultimate accumulation of all science and knowledge knowledge. oh yeah a universal truth
0: yes it's It's super strong because it draws from all these things in its roots
2: Mm -hmm. I think what's scariest for me like right now too is that this isn't even just like some cult that's like off to the side, like making images like their, this. Yeah. yeah, it's like this is in the the White the House. Heart
3: yeah, of this everything. Is, this is right. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it's yeah. terrifying. <clears throat> it's been like woven into society. <clears throat> and that's yeah. what everyone believes to be true. <clears throat> I also recently learned that like, once we start getting into the 1930s, some people are like, eh, "Eugenics has a little bit of issues." But they never thought, we need to get rid of this altogether. Mm -hmm. They thought, we're going to reform it to Mm -hmm. be better. Mm -hmm. Because it was so ingrained, they couldn't even imagine a world without eugenics. Mm -hmm. And I also really like this image, because I like to go the other way. Like, the image wants you to pull up from the roots, and then, like, Mm ta-da, at the top is eugenics. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm interested in going the other way, Mm -hmm. of where does eugenics linger in fields like... Mm. anatomy psychology biology education politics law etc yeah Mm -hmm. that last image was from the 1930s um and like i said scientists were communicating with each other about top tier science at the time which was eugenics and so remember we said in the beginning as well like eugenics went all over the globe and it's been growing in other places and it really shocked me that A lot of conservationists like Madison Grant, he always wanted to go over to Germany, but never made it because his health started to fail at this time. But they were sharing papers, they were going to conferences together, they were visiting each other, like visiting scientists and like visiting researchers. And German admiration of US US eugenics was really growing. And so a lot of German eugenics was escalating, but they were validating it by saying, you can't yell at us. Look at what they're doing to black people in the United States. We're not mm-hmm. nearly as bad as them. Don't worry about us. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not doing anything that bad. Uh, this also reminds me to say that Madison Grant's book, The Passing of mm-hmm. the Great Race, was picked up by Hitler, and he said, this is my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at our chart of immigration that was going up, 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 That's from bring this back, the 1800s okay. to the 1900s, It has a major drop at the turn of the century during the progressive era when people like Madison Grant and Teddy Roosevelt were worried about race suicide. Not enough white people mating with each other and too many immigrants coming in. They're very effective. We saw that Madison Grant was on like immigration committees and stuff. Mm -hmm. They lobbied to have immigration totally tank in numbers and only allow the certain right kind of people in and very few of them. But do you know what happens in world history at the end of the 1930s, early 1940s, that has to do with Germany? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. World War II, the
3: Holocaust. They were trying to prevent Jewish people from coming to the United States. So they're passing a lot of anti-immigration laws at that time.
0: Well said. Um, On our map... That is, like, the low point of immigration, and then it spikes up again because all of a sudden, everyone that was practicing eugenics globally, and especially in the United States, become really embarrassed. They're like, oh, wow, like, we were doing sterilization, but they took it to euthanization, and that's actually too far, which, thank God they said that (laughs) (laughs) because they were really on board for a long time. So, like, we know that a lot of um, Nazi scientists and officers were put on trial. Mm -hmm. After World War II, a lot of them were not, and nobody in the United States was. And so eugenicists simply just rebranded to geneticists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of, like, organizations changed. Mm-hmm. We saw journals, names of journals change to just become, like, eugenics or, like, biology. And no one was ever reprimanded, and it the makes sense. Population, right? Hmm? Overpopulation, right? Mm-hmm. Overpopulation. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense as to why we see eugenics to this day linger on through because nothing ever got, yeah, mm-hmm. nothing ever, nothing was ever held accountable. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Okay, I've, I've started adding this, and I think it's really important that Madison Grant did have a direct nemesis, and it was not me. No, <laughs> <laughs> do you know? It, <laughs> it was this goofy guy named Franz Boas. <laughs> and there's also a really great book about him and his research team, it's called Gods of the Upper Air. And he is an actual anthropologist, trained that way and studied that way for a long time. And what was really remarkable about him is that he does kind of look like an old white guy, but he is a Jewish person from Germany. And his research team was incredibly unique because it was made up of all women. So um, one woman was Ruth Benedict. Another one was Margaret Mead. Another one, very importantly, was Zora Neale Hurston, who later becomes an American author. But she is a Black woman, and he asks her to do research on Black people. He also employs Ella Cara Deloria, who is a Native woman, and he asks her to do research with Native people. And so they were far from perfect, because again, they're like operating in the 1920s and 30s. But there was a major difference in that they were getting stories from the people rather than imposing stories onto people to serve um, a specific political agenda. So I always love mentioning Franz Boas because um, Madison Grant died at the end of the 1930s and kind of like thank God he did because Franz Boas outlived him and that meant that Franz's ideas of marginalized people being one himself Uh, kind of triumphed over Madison Grant's. And remember we saw Madison Grant named himself an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. He was in the camp of biological anthropology of like physical features Mm -hmm. mean something about your character. But now we have cultural anthropology coming from Franz Boas of like different cultures. They have differences all around the world and they're all valuable inherently. Um, And that is the kind of anthropology that we see more commonly today. But as Erin mentioned, (laughs) eugenics is far from gone. And so I did have like a lot more books uh, on this, but I chopped some of them down. So this would be close to an hour. We're already a little bit over. But I I kept the most most commonly cited paper in ecology as an example, Hmm. The Tragedy of the Commons, um, which was published in 1968 by a person named Garrett Hardin. I think I
3: was required to read this. For foundations. This means I was taught this in my master's, master's program. program. You don't need to, I've been assigned to read this paper. Mostly. So many. Years. I had to read it like four months ago. Yeah.
0: yeah. Ridiculous. I had to read it as a first-year biology student at CSU too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't and yes. Yeah. class. but, oh. but just you proceeded to tear it right? apart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Thank God. Fun. Thank God. There's something that's like that time. out there. Um, <laughs> the idea is trash. We all know that. Yeah. <laughs> but what I want to point out is that there's a whole section called "Freedom to Breed" is intolerable. And I think most of the like 60 or 70,000 people that have cited this paper have not read that section or apparently they just think it's fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so when you look up Garrett Hardin, he's pretty explicitly like a white nationalist. Um, And he felt totally comfortable putting the freedom to breed is intolerable in his paper. And that has been a common theme for environmentalism in a way that has really gone um, uncritiqued. By a lot of groups. And we don't have to get into it, but mm-hmm. Tragedy of yeah. the Comments is, like,
4: also linked to, like, Malthus. And, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. I mean, I know another name. That'll yeah. we That'll be part two for this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: We let's uh, move on.
0: <laughs> 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 One other thing that really shocked me when I was looking into this was that the Boone and Crockett Club still currently exists. Whoa. And I love looking to see if they have any, like, about me things. Or, like, about us and, like, the history of our group.
4: Like, can we just acknowledge that it says pioneers on there, too? Mm-hmm.
0: Ooh, pioneers of conservation, yeah. good catch. And they have conservation heroes, which include Teddy Roosevelt, George Bird Grinnell, their founders, William T. Hornaday, who helped uh, yeah. bring back the bison, or so the story is told, <laughs> from from the mouths of old white conservationists. And they also have Madison Grant, And you better believe there's not a single word about eugenics Mm -hmm. on their website. Mm -hmm.
4: And just a small plug for the podcast that everyone should actually look up the real history of bison. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) Yes. I believe Dr. Schneider has a paper about it. Yes. Right? So good. I'll look that up, Mm -hmm. Okay, and then I like to leave off with the picture of the witness tree, which this reminded me I need to find the artist, but it's... um, What is that called when it's like fabrics? Felt? Yeah. Mm. What is that called when you like work with it? Quilting? No. (laughs) Felting? No, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. Okay, this is made from fabric. I'll say later. Stitching? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. textile. Yes. textile. Oh, wait. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Super, super close. Super, super close. Okay, but.
1: Embroidery? No. Just
0: like stop guessing (laughs) Okay, it's that picture of the eugenics tree that we talked about just a minute ago. And up in the branches, it says anti-eugenics. And on the sides, it says anti-eugenics is the collective creation of an equitable and healthy world for all. On the bottom, it says, like a tree, anti-eugenics draws from many sources and transforms them into a one mind and one heart way of being. And in the roots of this tree, it says things like relevance, reciprocity, love, justice, equality, support, truth, voices, inclusion, <clears throat> trust, education, honor, memory, etc. And so it makes me think about now that we know about eugenics, because one of the major problems of eugenics is that some people may have heard of it, most people have not. And most people do not know what it looks like or how to point it out. And so that's one way that it continues to be replicated is because it sneaks under the radar because we can't say, oh, there it is right there and like pull it out, (laughs) kind of like the weed that it actually is. Um, But now that we have a lens of what eugenics is and why it was bad, That means we can think about anti-eugenics. And what is anti-eugenic conservation or what is an anti-eugenic relationship with the land might be a better question. What could science look like if it was anti-eugenic? What does it even mean to be anti-eugenic? So I really like that. That's something that we all get to work on together now.
3: Erin brought up a overpopulation mm-hmm. I think that's a really good example of like how it still lives on today mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and I think you mentioned that
2: actually in your version and uh, yeah yeah which I think felt like people in their reflections after mm-hmm. really mentioned that they didn't understand why the overpopulation myth was so horrible and even talked about having used that and not known it was bad until this presentation.
0: Mm -hmm. And in the class that I teach, we spend a whole module on overpopulation. Oh, great.
4: Yeah. I think there's a way that you could um, kind of summarize it in terms of the fact that eugenics has influence on all disciplines, all schools of dominant thought in a settler, colonial, Anglo state that is the United States and across the globe, Mm -hmm. and that 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 influences the way that wildlife's managed (laughs) and thought of, and that in general, like, there's just so many connections between the ways in which humans have been understood, racialized, and othered just in the ways that non-human beings have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like how <laughs> eugenics is connected there yeah and like even beyond <laughs> like mm-hmm. too so I think that there is yeah
0: um yeah any other like closing thoughts I think
2: like also like in the lines of tying it back like these different heroes of conservation and ecology that are still talked about, that we're still reading, you know, like you connected that back with the tragedy of the commons, but, like, these people like Teddy Roosevelt and, I mean, Mm -hmm. Madison Grant, which I feel like he's talked about slightly less, but Mm -hmm. Aldo Leopold, Mm -hmm. who to me is still pretty controversial. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, there's Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mm -hmm. Henry David Thoreau, like, there are all these people. John John Muir, Gifford Pinchot. Yeah. Yeah, like, they all have their own backstories that we don't talk about that can all be like intertwined with this story that you've told yeah here. And I think we are starting to see more questioning of that mm-hmm. in ecology and conservation classrooms, but these are we need these stories, you know? Like it's it's okay to like talk about these things. And then one one more thought is I think it's a really big thing and something that I've noticed too when talking about people to be like okay here's like all this terrible history and now like what do we do about it and I'm curious what you guys think about this too but something at least that I tell myself um, and I have told like undergrads and in conversations with the students in that class um, is just that we just have to figure out how to center the right people like we don't have to be The power um, who, like, changes and steers that next movement. I mean, we can be, but I'm curious what you guys think about what it could mean to take a step back, slow down, and think about who and what stories do we even want to center first. Because Mm -hmm. I think it's a really colonial white supremacist...
3: To think it's on you. To think it's on you to
2: then go and fix it.
3: Yeah, because there's people who have been working for years and years, like, in the background of this story, who are anti-everything that this story is, and trying to highlight those people. Yeah. Is that what you're going to say,
1: Becca? Yeah, I was thinking something,
3: uh,
1: like, tangential to that, Erin. You know, I could imagine someone listening to this podcast and being like, oh my god my whole world is exploding mm-hmm. nothing is true mm-hmm. i've lost reality there's no like i can't change my this is my career what do, mm-hmm. where do i go and i think again uh it's an opportunity to decenter yourself and yeah. realize oh mm-hmm. my one way of knowing isn't the only way of knowing like mm-hmm. um learning this story gives you the opportunity to recognize that it is not the only story
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. and to find something different. Exactly. That exists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, um, like this presentation and hearing this story, being educated on these histories empowers you to recognize that there is something different mm-hmm. and to validate the things that haven't felt well, that mm-hmm. you know that you felt over the course of your life and that have maybe resonated with different identities that you or people you love carry and to, to give voice to that and recognize that you aren't alone or to stand beside the people around you.
4: Yeah. And I think in general, I think we can implore people to just generally be skeptical yeah. <laughs> um, of the information that they're, and the, the history that they know, the information that they're taught, like. What does it actually even mean to think critically? Yeah. And like in the ways in which we can question like our identities or connect to the things that haven't felt Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. But if there's things that you haven't questioned because you haven't even, there's a certain consciousness connected to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if you haven't been questioning things to even just start there Mm -hmm. (laughs) with like, I should be questioning things. Mm -hmm. And where is this narrative coming from? Mm -hmm. Because that's something that in the education that everybody in this room has received, Mm -hmm. that's something that we're actually taught really not to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of like things exist as truth, just like Mm -hmm. eugenics and wildlife management have existed as truth, Mm -hmm. when in fact that is one version of a truth that has had a very harmful history.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like this needs to be like a three part series. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> part one is like the history, right? Mm-hmm. And it's taking you through. Mm-hmm. Part two is like its manifestation today and mm-hmm. the practices mm-hmm. and things that yeah. we've seen today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like calling them out fairly really explicitly. Yeah. And then part three is like, okay what people have been doing like seeking out. Know, what are it. the other perspectives yeah. what are the other ways of knowing what's the other truth the people that have been in the background for all the time
0: yeah that have been and then centering those voices <laughs> <Yeah>. okay well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll put that on our website once we do it together yeah <laughs> there we go <laughs> I like because yeah, I know you great. all have knowledge about those two parts mm-hmm. yeah I can bring the history but
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. The other two parts. yeah and I sure. think there's something too,
4: just even from a gendered perspective here in terms of like that this podcast doesn't have time <laughs> to unpack at all mm-hmm. and I know that yeah. you've done so much reading on it too mm-hmm. but in the connection between wilderness and our understanding yeah. of yeah. it totally. <laughs> and the yeah. ways in which that that is a place for heteromasculinity <laughs> yeah <laughs> to operate <laughs> and yeah I think that that is also, like, a link that feels really relevant to the whole conversation. Yeah. But at the same exact time, there's only, like, so much time yeah. in the podcast to cover. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That'll
1: be part four. Yeah. <laughs> there <And> you sh- <laughs> go. Militarization. Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> just keep expanding. Yeah.
2: yeah there's, there's a lot. Gender. Gender. Yeah. 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 Part six is
0: unablishment. Yeah. Yeah. We gonna keep same. going. I know. I'm going to cut you off before you give me more work.
2: <laughs> just for people who are listening like I think a really big transition point for me when I started waking up to these realities um was someone asked me to examine who I'm reading who I'm listening to yeah what media I'm consuming in these different ways and of course it is mostly white men which is crazy because I'm like considering myself quote-unquote a feminist at the time mm-hmm. which my The ideas now versus my ideas then are totally different. So I'd ask, like, are you, who are you centering? You know, like if you're reading things by women, are they white women? If you're Mm -hmm. reading things by black people, are they just men? Mm -hmm. Um, I would ask, like, are you seeing anything by native people in any capacity at all or trans, non binary, gender fluid, whatever? Mm -hmm. And like, if you're not, and maybe, you know, you have different internalized racisms or homophobias or whatever to like go after those perspectives with mm-hmm. like such ferocity because those are the ones that we really need the most you know um mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that was big for me
0: yeah for sure yeah. okay well thank you all so much for listening to this and coming to help me yeah <coughs> and adding your comments and feedback and every all of it. Thanks for telling it again. Yeah, it's good. It was special.